Hello and welcome to the That's My Truth podcast. I'm your host, Juliana, and I'm so glad you're tuning in today. If you are a first-time listener, I'd like to welcome you to the show. And if you are a returning listener, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode. This podcast features discussions with people who I admire and look up to about everything from career and wellness to social issues and friendship. If you are looking for ways to support the show, there are a few ways. First, you can leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Second, you can share an episode with a friend or share it on social media. And lastly, you can follow us on social media and anywhere we are present online. So check us out. But overall, more than anything, you listening is the most supportive thing you can do. So thank you for tuning in. Hello, I'm really excited for this episode today. It is definitely one of the longer episodes, but that's really because (laughs) it was just a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. Um, (laughs) The episode was much longer than this one is originally after recording, just from um, some funny moments and breaks for random conversation. So I know you're going to love this interview. I zoomed or you know skyped with my friend Ellie from college and she and I lived together during our senior year and she is a social worker and just an all-around fabulous person and friend so I will turn it over to the interview and I hope you enjoy all right so welcome Ellie so glad to have you on the podcast (laughs) I'm so happy to be here yeah thank you um to start us off why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself Oh, gosh. Yeah. So this is so funny because when you I don't know if I'm allowed to say that you sent me a list of things. Okay, (laughs) but you sent me the list of things. And the one I stumbled on the most was how to introduce myself. Like I was like, I don't I don't know. I'm Ellie, Elena. Like I'm I don't know. Um, Yeah. So I'm Ellie. I'm Elena. I was Juliana's roommate um, in college, which was amazing. Like what a wonderful human. Um, and, uh, after college, I went on to get my MSW, um, master's in social work at UConn. Um, Juliana and I went to UConn together and yeah, I don't know. Other than that, I'm like a, I'm a, so now I'm a, I'm a therapist. I work with teenagers and their families in Massachusetts. And, uh, other than that, I am like a, I don't know, a reader, a (laughs) A daughter, a sister, a, you know, friend. A dog just, parent. Yeah. Uh, oh, my God. Yes. How could I forget? A dog <laughs> parent. My most proud title. <laughs> um, yeah, that's me. Cool. Thanks, Ellie. So you mentioned that you went to school after your undergrad for your MSW. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what made you want to pursue your MSW? Yeah, I love answering this question. I'm just so... I love social work so much (laughs) and I I knew I was going to love social work for you know long before I got my MSW but yeah I I always knew I wanted to be in the mental health field um and you know this evolves as you get to know kind of like the nitty-gritty of what is out there in the field like what's available to you for a profession wise so um when I was in undergrad, I, you know, first I really want to be a guidance counselor. And then I kind of learned a little bit more about that and didn't want to limit myself to a, 
to a school. And then I kind of thought I wanted to be a therapist. And so then I was thinking of doing like psychology or something. But then I had an an amazing advisor, actually. I loved my college advisor who was like talking to me about my social justice classes that I was taking that I loved. Like I was obsessed with everything I was learning in that class and um, those classes. And I... I just, she was like, why don't you do social work? Like, you love these classes so much. Why aren't you doing social work? It, it's basically a combination of the things that you love. And I looked more into it and I was like, oh, absolutely. There wasn't a doubt in my mind. So that is definitely why. And then after that, I, that was probably sophomore year in college. So I just knew all through college that I was immediately going to go get my master's in social work um and that's why I graduated early like I was just like let's go let's 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 do this thing yeah I think it's neat that you're you've been so like confident in that decision well since I've known you you were like oh yeah I'm going to get my MSW yeah it was kind of always like a no-brainer I do I think back now and I I think I got lucky with that mindset like I actually like looking back it's kind of a dangerous mindset to have um you know I don't know that I would advise that to people or even to my past self but um it is it just happens to be something I'm I still am very passionate about so I I, I'm lucky in that regard yeah sometimes like ignorance is less (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah for sure I mean I definitely I'll say I definitely didn't know what I was getting myself into like (laughs) I I had a rose-colored view of all of it but um wouldn't change it for sure wouldn't change it yeah can you talk a little bit about your job now yeah so I work now um as a clinician through um in CBHI which is um Children's Behavioral Health Initiative in Massachusetts. Um, It's kind of like a statewide initiative that basically was developed because kids were bouncing from hospitalization to home, um, just back and forth, back and forth. And they realized they needed some higher level of care beyond like your regular typical, you know, outpatient therapist or individual therapist. Um, and families really needed help. Like it was families who needed help in addition to the kids. Um, and so in home therapy was born, which is what I do. Um, and it is really cool. So the, the model is like you, you meet up with a family in need, either, you know, there's been a crisis in the past or they anticipate a crisis. Um, and they're referred to us, it's me, myself, and a bachelor's level clinician. So that's another cool part of it. It's not just me. I'm working as a team. There's other services too, but I'm always with somebody. And we go in and we we meet with the kids and we meet with the parents. And we, we really talk, you know, as a collective whole, like how can we support this kiddo who's who's going through it right now, you know? Um, and it's it's a needs-based service too. So it's pretty individualized. Like it can very much vary. You know, there are cases that are really intense um, and there are cases who kind of just need like a, a little guidance here and there. Um, So it, the intensity varies, but I love it. I love, I, I love my clients so much. Um, Anyone I've ever worked with, I, they, they're really, I've met some incredible, incredible people and 
Yeah. So that's I'm 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 building my clinical skills with this too. Like I I mean I in the grand scheme of things I did just graduate, so I am very much learning um as as I go. So I get a lot of supervision from my boss and um trainings and things like that too, which is really nice. That sounds like an awesome job. So is it yeah. remote during COVID, like your session? Yeah, so it's crazy. So, you know, I used to work for the Department of Children and Families when I got out of school. Um, that's where I went, um, which was amazing. I had I had to leave. I did not want to leave that job. Um, but I, I ended up having to leave because of a licensure logistical thing. I, I wasn't going to be able to get the license that I needed um, to pursue the career like long term that I wanted um so I started this job right when COVID hit like I I put in my four weeks at DCF which was so hard and then I um like I think two weeks or three weeks after that the state got like shut down um and then a couple weeks later, I was working at this new job, like in the straight up beginning of COVID. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired right away. <laughs> um, what a horrible time to leave your secure state job for a, a new one. Um, but they were really wonderful. It, it has all been remote. Um, so up until this point, especially for me, um, because I am immunocompromised. So but yes, everything has been remote and I actually, I'm getting my vaccine, my second one on Friday. So in two weeks, I'll get to go see clients in person again. And I am so, so excited. Like I, I cannot, I can't wait. I'm so excited. It's hard to do therapy over telehealth. Oh yeah. That's also yeah. amazing because you probably haven't met a lot of them in person, right? No, I've met, I have barely met any of them over a couple times I was, you know, um, if there was like an emergency, I was checking in with my car, like I would like drive up and, and I did that a, a few times. And I, um, for the younger ones, I also sometimes would drop off like crafts or something like that. Um, so I would like wave to them. And so they would know like, I'm a real person. <laughs> um, but yeah, most of them I really haven't met in person. I definitely haven't had like an extensive, you know, session with anyone in person. So I'm very excited for that to happen. Yeah. It sounds like you really like your job. Um, actually like just the field in general. So what's your favorite part of your job? Oh, the client, the people, the clients, um, for sure. Every, I learned something from each one of them. Um, you know, it's, it's, I love my job because it's, it's not like this relationship where, um, you know, I think in, teenagers engage in so much, right. Their whole life is, authority and like people above them you know kind of telling them what to do in this space in their life where they really want to start doing that themselves um and so it's really I I love that the structure is like you know it's very much they're the boss and they know what's best for their life and you are there as a support um and you you develop treatment around what they what they what they're saying they need it's just such a learning experience like i it's such a learning experience. And also they're, they're just wonderful people. Like 
aside from the work itself, you know, you just meet some people who are truly just to their core incredible um, and resilient and beautiful. And yeah, I that's my favorite part, hands down. I love it so much. So how has your experience in social work changed how you see people and the world? Yeah, I just, it's so, it's such a cliche, but like, you just really don't know what somebody's going through, you know, and the, the, the lady who's being annoying at the grocery store, um, or the car that's driving really slow. And I, I, you know, on my, even, I won't even say my worst days, like, even on an average day, those things can push my buttons too, even though, you know, but it is something that I try to remind myself because it, it just is so true. Like you really just have no idea what people might be going through in, in, inside of them. And the, the concept that, you know, the eyes that you see through and the things that you hear and feel and smell and, and everything is so individualized for every single person on the planet is crazy to me. And, and that's confirmed many times a week, you know, throughout my work. It, and, you know, I also think it's taught me the importance of parenting and children um, and like the, just the vast responsibility of raising a child. And there's, it, it just is enormous and it consumes, like, it consumes your, your life. Do you have this person who's your whole heart or half your heart walking around outside of your body um, un- completely unable to control them. I mean, parenting is, um, I'm not a parent, but I, I work with parents and, th- and that piece of it has, I think that's shaped my view of parents also and my, my own too, my own parents too. What is a change that you'd like to see in the social work slash social services space? <laughs> oh my God, this question. I have so many things to say. Um, I have so many, so many things to say because as much as I love social work, right, and I'm so passionate about it, there are so many things that need to be changed. Like I'll start with, um, you know, I had a kid wait for two weeks in an emergency room for just to get placed in a bed. Like, so that system is a complete crisis. And that's not just in Massachusetts, that's in Connecticut. Like I know that from going to school there and you know, it's across the board. Um, that's a huge thing. I think, I think my biggest thing lately, there's so many things, so many, so many, so many things I could go on for ages. Like it's a system. So it's endless. It's overwhelming. It's, it's if you think about it too hard, it's crushing. So um, but I, some things really actually on a smaller scale that I've been thinking a lot about based on what my clients say is these kids come and they're like, and parents too are like, ugh, I hate therapy. They're like, therapy sucks. And I'm like, yeah, I, okay. You've had some tough experiences with therapy. Almost always though, people are coming in with these previous experiences of, with therapy that are negative. They're not good being a part of that system, there's a lot of pressure because I'm, because now you're sitting there like, oh God, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the negative therapist. Like, I don't want to be the thing that they're going reporting to the next therapist. Oh, my other therapist was terrible. 
I'm in the field, so I know how stressful it can be and how hard it can be in that. And we, we each also therapists have our own like lives and stuff. Right. So, um, that can sometimes come into a session, which it's not supposed to, but we're human. So it does. But I, I just think that it also comes down to style and like, as a therapist, you know, you're going to have some clients that you absolutely, you're like, yes, I can't wait for this session and other clients that push you and challenge you. And for clients, like on the flip side, you're, you're sometimes connecting with a therapist on a really great level. And then that therapist might move or that therapist might change jobs or that therapist might stop practicing. And then you have to go find someone else. And that's a really hard experience. And then uh, the other piece of that is sometimes you meet with someone and you don't click with them and it does feel crappy. And that's usually what my clients come to me with. They are, they're coming to me like, Oh my God, I don't trust you because I think you're going to leave soon. Or, Oh my God, I don't trust you because I didn't click with my last therapist and I had a really negative experience. That negativity comes from, and you might, I don't know if you've been to therapy, but I, I have, um, and I relate to this, like trying to find a therapist, right? So, which is so hard. Like you're on like psychology today or some crappy website like that. And you're trying to find someone who you can afford, who fits your insurance and, um, and you get a picture and a blurb. Like that's all you get. And then you sign up for an intake appointment and that's that. And that's, there's no concept of like therapy shopping, which is what it should be based on all the models in therapy. Like finding a therapist should not be you sign up for an intake appointment and that, and that's it. The intake appointment should be with the understanding. Ideally, this is what I was taught in school, but it's not how the system is like in an intake appointment, there should be this understanding of, Oh, you, you are interviewing me. I'm working for you. Like you're interviewing me. And if my style isn't, isn't, you're not rolling with it. Like you should be able to very easily say like, no, I'm actually good. Like I'm gonna go find somebody else or even, even how great would this be? If you could be like, um, these are the things that I just don't think match up. Like, do you have any recommendations for people who maybe that would match up? That's, um, I think the biggest thing I'd like to see change is just that, that initial, that those initial appointments are so important. And I, I wish that there was more of a, a, a flexibility on the therapist's end to be like accommodating of that. And I think that the issue is private practice is often so isolated. Like when you have a private practice or even if you're in a group of people, like you're, you're, that's it. Like you're suctioned out by yourself. You're like on a little Island. And I wish that there was more collaboration on like, Oh, that's not my specialty, but I know someone uh, like I went to school with someone who is, here's their number or, Oh, I know this person in the area who is older or younger or is a parent and I'm not. And, um, you know, a lot of different factors play into why someone might feel comfortable having you as a therapist. And I think that those need to be, they're talked about in school. Like we learn that in school and then in the system, it really doesn't happen that often. And it's something I see so much with my clients and it would be so helpful. Um, and I think people's understanding of therapy would be would be a little different there's a weird stigma with therapy like you either 
are like, yes, therapy, like go to therapy. Or you're like, I don't need therapy. Like therapy's stupid. Like they're just going to teach me how to breathe or something. <laughs> um, and I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I wish that that stigma would change because there's so many different styles out there that really, if everyone felt like they had access to all those different styles, you would, you, everyone would find someone who would help. And everyone needs help, especially now. Like mental health, it could always be better. You know, it could always be better. Even if it's just there for maintenance, like you have someone there in case life throws something at you. Life hap- life happens. Like, I don't know. I, that's my biggest thing I think with the system and I think that if that happened if 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 it was more of like a valued thing in society then those other systemic things would start to change like you know all those things are happening obviously because of money um and and people you know investing into that system and if if more people were buying into that system freaking capitalism here but (laughs) more people were buying into that system it would look a lot different I think yeah Kind of like a cultural shift and then market shift, market. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah. it starts, I think, with the therapists. So mm-hmm. that's like my goal is to have a private practice, but to have a private practice, like community, like a large, I'm talking a large private practice community where the whole community would have that same understanding, like of kind of therapist dating, if you will. Like, I tell all my clients, that's a phrase I tell all my clients, like, therapy ideally should be like dating. You should be able to go to a therapist and then be like, nope, peace, on to the next, swipe left, right, left, is it left or right? Swipe whatever way you want. Like, it should be, you know, at the discretion of the client, so. So I know that you are an advocate for jo- social justice. When did you first get involved in that work? Oh, such a funny question. I don't really know. I, I don't really know. Uh, like, officially, I, I can't say that I'm, like, a part of, you know, social justice, like, organization. I mean, I am. My, the, I am. The, the... <laughs> The company I work for is called Justice Resource Institute. So technically they are like a, a social justice company, which is why I liked it and why I chose to go work there. I I don't know that I can like put a time, a time frame on it. I think, you know, I think like most white privileged people, which I, I am, I noticed far too late how unequal things were from the start um and that really bothered me on a really serious level like the white guilt thing was very real for me when I was young like I'm like in high school and I think since there you know I'm not I don't claim to be perfect with any of it but it is something that I really try to advocate for mostly in white spaces, uh, white privileged spaces, um, have uncomfortable conversations in those kinds of spaces. Cause I feel like 
I guess I, I, my, my fear is taking away from voices that deserve to be or should be heard more than mine. And, you know, there's a lot of people in my life and who I've interacted with, who I, I'm, you know, I'm very, any one of my friends or family will tell you I'm pretty comfortable having a conversation with anyone that, uh, about those things. I've learned how to do that in a way that's not, like, too passionate, um, <laughs> where it, it ends up being, you know, I'd, I hope more productive than I, I think you knew me in college. I was a little bit of a hothead with all of it, with all of it. That it is really why, that is really why I did social work and not like LMHC. Um, there's an element to, you know, the, the idea of social work, the, one of the, the principles is that you have a responsibility to your clients, not only on an individual level when you're sitting with them, but you also have a responsibility to them systemically. So you have a responsibility to advocate against the systems that are oppressing them or hurting them um, in whatever way you think that might be. So part of that sometimes looks like educating my clients on actually what well, what are those systems. Um, I, I do some work on like a micro individual level like that. And I think the macro stuff, I'm kind of uh, I mean, I, def I, I politically, like I was, you know, I volunteered for the Biden campaign. I just hated, I just hated Trump so much. I, like, I didn't, I was one of those people. I didn't love Biden. But once he, once he was the guy, I was like, I'm not going to sit around. I was scared. I was nervous about that. <laughs> and I think as the election approached, I was terrified. I was, I was like, I will be darned if I don't try to do things that prevent that from happening again. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt like I couldn't sit around. So I, I did, I, I do things like that. I think I'm, uh, again, I'm not perfect. Like I'm trying to still figure out where my voice belongs in those spaces. Every time there's something at work or every time there's, you know, a, a place where I feel like my voice is appropriate to be there. I am, I am there and in the back <laughs> and listening and really learning. Uh, it's a space that a lot of people can have a very different opinion with the same goal about how, you know, about how to achieve the same goal. So I've learned a lot of different kind of perspectives on how to approach things and I'm just constantly trying to educate myself, like educate myself about what those are and what, and what the systems are what you were saying about speaking up and like the spaces that you I like identify with like a white privilege space versus and then like stepping back when it's not necessarily a place where you can appropriately advocate I totally that, yeah 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 it just is you know I I, I can't I can't speak on that that's mm -hmm. not you know that's not my personal experience I have you know the the person I've been with for eight years has those personal experiences so I think that's partly why I was so angry like I I mean I'm still angry right but 
um, visibly angry in my in my arguments and they would get so unproductive because I would bring so much like personal experience into that that I've that I've witnessed through him and that really like you know I I love him and I love his family and I it's it it hits it does it, it hits different when you're when you love somebody who's directly impacted by those systems and by like things that people say um yeah it's 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 tough to sit it's tough to have those conversations when all of that is in the you're carrying all of all of that around it's tough to have productive conversations but i i think it's i've come to realize that that it's super important to just move the needle and and if you can move then that screaming never moves the needle like an anger really doesn't either it makes people defensive um so you don't really get very far it's hard to not get stuck in the mindset of like why are why are why is this conversation even a thing like why are we even here why am I even having to explain this and that is what that that feeling is exactly why I feel like I need to be really careful about where my voice is heard and where I'm occupying space because if I feel that way as a white person and a privileged white person um I I I know that it that's a small small fraction of what people of color feel um, and if I am talking about, you know, my person who I love and his family, um, you know, that's also a small fraction. And, and I'm and I worry about that and I'm scared about that sometimes and I'm angry about that sometimes, you know, what what is what is that again is a small fraction of of what people of color feel on a daily basis. So yeah, I appreciate you sharing and talking about that because I know it's something that's very, yeah, like you mentioned, very important to you and your job and your ethos as a person. So yeah, yeah, and the job stuff is like that's another intersection too where I talk about the therapy, um, working with so many people of color uh, that 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 I might not be the right person to be working with them and right now unfortunately like the job I'm in right now when you get assigned a therapist like I I'm it you know like I'm I'm it but it's been very blatant a lot of times that you know there's no master's level clinicians of color on on my team um so there's no opportunity for clients of color to have a clinician who might be sharing their experiences and and that's a that's a that's a missing part of the work for them um and it's it's hard to come to terms with that as their as their therapist like that i i most likely can't give them the quality of care that i would like that i would like to yeah, it's it's interesting you say that because I had um, someone, one of my friends from college on a couple of weeks ago, and she is getting her PhD in psychology. And so she is doing therapy. And she was saying that as a black woman, she's had some like amazing moments in therapy with like another black client and just how 
like special that feeling was to like hit it off and have like a great therapy session, like as an individual, how that like session went for both of them. Like, it's just interesting mm-hmm. to think about because like you mentioned, like the, yeah, there, you just, the experiences of your life are very different simply because of. It's so, di- yeah. Yeah. Your race yeah. And, you know, that's kind of where it's like such a fine line. The white guilt thing is so, because as, you know, as a therapist, you go into this, you care about your clients and you want, you want to provide the best care for them. So it, it's hard to sit with that sometimes. And it's very valid. It's very valid. Like it's very true and very valid. And I can't, and, and it sucks that I can't, I can't turn around and say, well, actually I know this really great clinician who I can refer you to, who will provide, provide that. Um, that's where I, that's the system part I was talking about before. I wish that there was a, a way to, to do that. Definitely just like representation and then the ability to connect to clinicians Mm -hmm. that you would connect with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears a little bit, um, and this is pretty general, but who do you look up to? Oh my gosh. This was another question that I had like a lot of trouble with (laughs) because, because I was thinking like, I was, I don't know. I feel like when you ask that question, you're supposed to come up with like, like that reflection, that's a reflection on you, like who you look up to, you know? So you're trying to come up with like a cool answer. And I really didn't have someone who like in me, I'm like, Oh, absolutely. This person, you know? Um, So I was trying to think about it. Um, And I think, I think the people I look up to are all people who I am surrounded by and know. Um, I, I can't come up with someone who I don't know personally, like a, like a celebrity or an author or something like that. Um, because I, I don't know who they are. Like to me, someone to look up to, I, you have to know them well, or I do. Um, I think that comes from my mistrust of of jk rowling also because if you ask me this in like middle school or high school like she was always the person i would say um those books shaped shaped me in in a lot of ways like as a young young kid and i loved her and and now it's 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 awful it's like heartbreaking um on so many levels but i so yes so for that reason like you can i can love someone's books i've well, lots of authors who I really absorb their work, um, lots of people in the field, you know, um, but I think they're all like colleagues and friends and family members and people who I really, who I know them. I know who they are as people and I know who they, what they do for work. And I know like little bits and pieces of everybody. Like I think, I think those are the the people who I'm with every day and who I value in my life are the, really the people who I look up to. So I loved that question because I, I don't think I had thought of that before. Um, and I realized it just now. So like you. 
I love that answer because that's kind of why I put it in here because everyone has a different interpretation of it. Um, and I interviewed a woman who lives in DC who's like an artist slash she's cool. All if you haven't listened to Libby Living Colorfully's podcast, listen to it. But she <laughs> talked about how she doesn't look up to one person. She has different things that she sees in all of her friends Absolutely. and people. And that's yep. what yeah, your your answer was similar. Yeah, I love that. Um, also, the J.K. Rowling thing is very sad. So I'm sorry <laughs> that she did that. Well, it's too. just as like you know, there's there's so many people who put out such good content now, whether that be a book or a movie or a, you know even like acting or advocacy and all this stuff. But you don't know how they interact with the people they love, and you don't know you know and and so That's I guess really yeah. Point. But, to her point, like, I would take the pieces that they've given me through through what they put out into the world, but I can't say I, I and truly the J.K. Rowling thing, like, made me realize that I totally lost trust in, in all of that. Like, wow, yeah. you really can be not a not a super great person or not super accepting of others, which is. I, I need I would need someone I idolize to be accepting of others um and supportive and supportive of of others and like yeah so that I totally lost trust <laughs> yeah yeah it makes sense so um, sad I was reading this thing the other day that was like the saddest death in Harry Potter wasn't any of the characters is JK Rowling <laughs> <laughs> I actually wasn't the like character a Potterhead. So I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you but weren't a Potterhead? No. Yeah, I was so Potterhead. But I'm happy for right. you. I support it, obviously. I, I, yeah, I don't know if I am. I haven't Anymore. read the books since, since all of that. I haven't been able to bring myself to do it because I'm terrified that I'm going to read them and, and pick things out that I didn't before and oh, yeah. um, with like that context, so. Okay, so wanted to shift to talk about wellness and, like, health things. Yes. So you were diagnosed with Lyme disease after months of frustrating visits, trying to figure out what was going on. Can you talk about that experience? Yes, I can. I So it was a weird thing because I actually, I was diagnosed, like, it was so weird. I, I found the tick, like, on me. Um, so I actually know exactly, it bit me on my, it was on my butt, it bit me on my butt. <laughs> and I, I, um, I was get, I was a light, I used to be a lifeguard and I, in the woods, like basically, and I was taking my bathing suit off and my nail scraped something right before I got in the shower. And I literally was like, and I heard something like tick the floor. And I was like, what was that was just on me. And I got on my hands and knees and I found this like minuscule when I say it was a speck of dust it was so small I don't even know why I what what prompted me to do that but I found it somehow on the bathroom floor and I brought it down to my mom and I was like mom I think I think this was a tick I think it was you know in me and she was like looked at it and literally was like oh no that's not a tick that's too small (laughs) but then was like okay maybe it is so he saved it but didn't do anything and then I was lifeguarding um, a couple of weeks later and I fainted like on duty. It was so embarrassing. It was like this giant family night. Everyone was around 
So I faint and um, my grandpa picked me up and I am a fainter, as you know, I, <laughs> I faint. Um, so it wasn't unheard of that I fainted and that's what everyone chalked it up to. But then I had a fever and I still didn't feel well after I took a nap, which is usually my procedure. I faint and eat and take a nap and I'm fine. Um, and my mom like remembered and there was this huge rash, like it was undeniably Lyme disease. It was a full bullseye, like, you know, given how small the tick was, it was probably had like a diameter of like a foot, like 12 inches, 10 inches. And on your butt? On my, oh, oh, direct, directly on my butt. I had a giant bullseye. It was so, it was, it was, yeah. And I was, and I didn't notice because it was on my butt. So I, so, so it was huge at that point and like very angry rash. So I literally went to my doctor and he took one look at it and was like, yep, mine was prescribed the normal amount of antibiotics because I caught it early. So everyone was like, oh, you catch it early. You get, you get antibiotics and you're good. So I took the antibiotics. Um, after that, immediately after I got off the antibiotics from Lyme, which was what, three weeks, I think I had three weeks of it. And that was, I was starting sophomore year of college. I got strep throat like this, like as soon as I got off the antibiotics, which I had gotten strep throat before, but not often, maybe like twice in my life. So I was like, that's weird. Took antibiotics, went to the infirmary, you know, took antibiotics, was feeling better. As soon as I got off those antibiotics, got strep throat again, immediately. Um, that pattern happened for the entire semester of sophomore year. Like if I was not on antibiotics, I had strep throat, um, to the point where by the time it was January, so that started happening in August, by the time it was January, I had to get my tonsils removed. Like I couldn't, I, 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 I was a college student. Like I was like, I don't have time for this strep situation that keeps happening for whatever reason. I got strep like nine times in the semester. And no one talked about why that was happening. Like, I just thought it was, like, I did not put it together that it was Lyme because everyone just told me, oh, you caught it early and you got the antibiotics, you were fine. So I immediately got my tonsils removed, which was a horrendous experience um, as an adult. I had a really bad time. Um, and then, And then I didn't get strep anymore. But after that, I had been on antibiotics so long, like pretty much months of antibiotics. My poor friends and people who know me have had to deal with some some crap. But I, it was really hard, like walking around in a situation where those people weren't around me. I had a lot of anxiety about like, oh my God, okay, am I going to faint here? You know, am I, am I going to be walking down stores road and just hit my head on the pavement? You know, when's this going to come or am I, am I going to feel like I have to throw up some like in an interview or in class or in, so I'm constantly trying to think about, oh, well, what if I felt, what if I feel really sick this day? Or what if I, you know, um, feel really tired this day or when can I take a nap like a, so I'm trying to like piece my life together and still not sacrifice anything in college the other part of it was you know, college life was like partying and by you know sophomore year fall sophomore year I'd strep all the time was on antibiotics all the time I have a very weak stomach so couldn't really consume alcohol 
in that time frame. And after I was, you know, after school and activities and I was so drained. Like I was like, the last thing I wanted to do on a weekend was go out to the bar. Like I, I, I was so sick, <laughs> but I didn't know why. Like I didn't have a diagnosis. No one, I thought it was me. I thought there was a problem with me. I thought it was an inherent like personality flaw or something. I don't even know. Um, I didn't, I just thought I was like weak. So yeah, that's Lyme. It's a beast. <laughs> I eventually, um, so after all that time, my mom actually said one day that she ran into someone at like dance class or something like that. Um, and was like, Hey, I was talking to this lady and she had Lyme and like, turns out it can last a long time. Like, like she was like, Oh my God, I, I think that's why you've been feeling so sick. And, and then I Googled it. And the first thing that came up was strep throat. And I was like, Oh my God, I, why didn't I piece that together? It was immediately after I got off the antibiotics that I started getting strep throat so much. Why didn't I piece that together? And why didn't any of the providers that I saw piece that together? Like I felt really betrayed by the doctors and the healthcare system. I think I still walk around with that a little bit. Like I, you know, I moved to Massachusetts. It took me like two years to find a new, a new doctor because I just was not very trusting. Um, I was overwhelmed with trying to find someone new. So yeah, um, it was, it was a beast. The, the diagnosis was freeing um, because that, you know, it took that piece away. That was like, what's wrong with me? You know, it kind of explained a lot. Um, and then it was a journey to, to get healthy. It's, it still is, but it, after the diagnosis, it was a journey. So was your diagnosis just chronic Lyme disease, essentially? Yeah, I, yes, uh, yes and no. So my primary care provider said it's anxiety. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, I'm in with the mental health stuff. Like I can accept that I definitely have anxiety. I think it stems from my health stuff though. Like I was like, um, luckily, you know, older and able to kind of advocate for myself more there. It was weird though. Cause anxiety manifests so somatically, like, so I still to this day, like, I don't know how much of that was anxiety about not feeling well and genuinely not feeling well. But I definitely know that there was multiple times a day that it was pure, that it was purely physical. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'm going to call bullshit. And I, and I went and I found a naturopath doctor, um, who specialized in Lyme and she diagnosed me with chronic Lyme and had me take these herbs and put me on a gluten-free, sugar-free and dairy-free diet which was the hardest thing I've ever done. I, I, I did that for a summer. Trust me. That is not, you know how much I like ice cream and all the things. So that was a very, very hard for me. Um, because I'm a foodie, but I did it because I was like, 
at that point I was like, I will literally, I will do anything to feel better. I'm, I, I didn't even remember what it felt like to feel like a normal person. I remember just sitting up at night every night. So feeling so sick that I couldn't even go to sleep and thinking like, just, I just want to feel normal. Like just, I don't even remember what that feels like, but just let me feel normal. Um, so I was really at my wits end and I did it. I was very, I was pretty good. I was very good about it. Actually. I had like one slip up one time at a Red Sox game. I had a Fenway Frank because, <laughs> because how can you not? <laughs> but other than that, I was very, very good. And, um, she had me take herbs along with that, that were also horrible. They, um, I, I can't remember what the, what the actual term is, but they basically like explode the lime inside of you, the, like bacteria. So the bacteria explodes and it like emits like its contents, but it makes you feel sicker because it's like throughout your system. So, and then eventually that, that kind of goes away. Um, my grandparents thought it was absolute crap. Um, and it kind of came to a head when my mom and dad were gone. They, they were on vacation and, um, I was home alone. My grandparents were, um, the ones who were around and I was so sick. Like I was, I was sitting up in bed to drink water and passing out from dehydration. Cause I was just so sick and um my grandma came in the room and she was like when are you gonna cut out this herb shit like this is not making you feel better and at that point I was like okay you're kind of right and I and I stopped taking them but after that like after I stopped and the sickness from actually taking the herbs every day which tasted like dirt by the way absolute absolute dirt and gasoline it was like so the worst shot you've ever taken in your life um after I stopped taking the dirt and gasoline shots, I, I felt so much better. Like it was amazing. It was really amazing. Um, it was not a complete fix at all, but it, it got me on a track like of, of wellness because before then I was literally treading water. I was surviving and I couldn't give up my life to get better. Like I couldn't put things on hold. So I was treading water to continue life as best as I could and the, and I was not getting better so that's what helped me get better I think or helped me at least put me on a track to start to focus to get better um and then so I I was pretty good and I actually ended up getting a connection to an infectious disease um, specialist through Connecticut Children's who saw me um and he reviewed everything that the naturopath sent that, you know, my history, he did a full workup and he said, he actually said, you know, at this point, I don't actually know that you have, uh, he, he was, he said something like you have chronic Lyme, but, but it's not going to be forever. Like he was like, it's, it's, you're going to have times where you've, you you're more prone to things and you feel badly but it's not going to be this horrible brain fog and and fatigue and all these things that you're dealing with forever he said a lot of it was probably it was a combination of the lime and the antibiotics 
the amount of antibiotics that I took. So it took my gut like forever. It still is, is not the best, but, um, you know, there's, I have good days and, and bad days with it. I, I think I've learned like I did with my fainting, like I've learned how to, how to live with it. Um, and I have, I'm, I'm really blessed to have like really supportive people. Like, um, my boyfriend has been <laughs> super influential in the whole, the whole journey, but, um, he's pretty great. If I'm having a, a bad day, he knows, he knows the drill, he knows what to do. <laughs> so that, that definitely helps when you have somebody like that. Definitely. So how do you manage it on a daily basis, the Lyme disease? Yeah, it, de- it totally depends on the day. I think um, managing my anxiety with it, I think was the hardest thing because if, even though I was feeling better, like that anxiety still lingered. Um, so taking care of that was really important. Um, and like getting that under control. And then I think, um, you know, daily basis, like I, I definitely have learned how to drink more water. Like that was not something I was super great at. Um, and also just food, like consuming food, snacks, food, multi- like really advocating for myself, even if I don't have access to food, like, hey, I need to eat if I'm in a group with people or, um, you know, ha- get bringing a bar with me at all. Like I have a bar at all times always. That's really helpful. Working out really, uh, working out really got me back on track. So I went to Sweden. Um I went to Sweden and it was the first time with the Lyme stuff that I had nothing to do. Like I didn't have a work visa. I was just there living there for months and I had not a thing to do except cook dinner for a bunch of football players. Um, love them. Cook dinner and, and work out. And, and then everything else was my, the time was my own. Like I could, I could, walk on the river I could draw I could do whatever I wanted um read so that was really a really important time I think for me to feel better when I got there I was very underweight and very unhealthy because I just wasn't eating I still felt very sick and that what I had no stress and I had all the time in the world to focus on my health and so I was working out every day I was eating <laughs> Swedish food which is like starches and meats (laughs) um so I I put a little weight back on which definitely helped like with my strength I think um you know that's uh, that's really important for me now that my body keeps that on that I that I really make sure I'm getting the calories that I need even when I don't feel like eating um having that strength like it's strength it's fuel it's strength you need it to to fight things off and um and good quality foods to help so that's kind of what I do now and I I the the mental part like the pushing myself part is was important too like not spreading myself so thin after Sweden I kind of realized like oh I think I need more time like, I think I need to give myself some more time. I'm glad that you are able to figure out, like, what works because 
just like hearing that it lasted for such a long time is so unfortunate that like you feel I mean I don't know if you feel this on a regular basis but even just saying how it impacted your college career like it's it's interesting how like you mentioned with the social work like everyone is kind of going through their own things whether mental physical or even just like global like feeling the impacts of certain events in the world so yeah yeah, I appreciate you sharing because I know that's been a, a big part of your life in the past like five years so yeah it really has and it also is it was a big like you know we just talked about you don't know what people are going through um it was a big that showed me that was like the first or one of the first like big lessons with that for me because it's not something that you see like you know see people seeing me walk around you know I was fine I look fine I you know, people even was, you know, th- that's a whole separate issue. But people were like, oh, you look so great when I was like extremely underweight and very, very sick, which uh, obviously, you know, people mean well. But I think not not have not questioning when someone's like, I'm struggling. I think some sometimes there's a there's a need within us to be like, oh, no, you're fine or well, we look so good or, or you're doing so many things. You, you're so great. And, and I, and you so badly want to be like, I am trying so hard every day to be what you're saying. And I want to be so badly what you're saying. And I'm not. And I, I just would like some support right now. I think it was, that was a big lesson for me too. Yeah. Some validation. I have one question that I know is another like big piece of your life um, that is, again, not an, like a more challenging thing to talk about, but I know that you lost a friend from cancer while in college. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what have you done to cope with the loss of that friendship? Yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, cope is a good word. It's, grief is grief is so fun like funny and strange like funny in a strange way I think there are days that are still like harder than others I think initially it was you know as grief does like time with time it gets a little better and you get to like a more perspective on it like you go back But it's really, you know, even still, like, going through the motions of life, it's hard not to think, like, where he would be and and what his life would look like and what his life would look like, you know, in relation to mine. Um, It's hard not to think those things. I think that the, the biggest thing is, like, talking about him a lot, or not a lot, but just not having it be such a heavy thing because he was so amazing. Like he was so wonderful and, and having friends who knew him and that were all able to kind of still talk about him like that. That's definitely been the most helpful thing, like still on, um, you know, on like his birthday and his um, 
well, co in COVID, it's been a little different, but typically, you know, we we get together on those things, and on the anniversary of his death too, we we do some things like together. Um, that's been really helpful. Also, like his mom and family are amazing, and so his mom and I still connect briefly, um, or you know, sporadically when I'm when I'm home sometimes, or just text messages. Like she texted me the other day. Um, a blanket of all these t-shirts that his sister had had given his mom and uh, it was amazing like seeing all those t-shirts on a, on a blanket um so the little things like that I I think the talking about him helps me the most but people grieve in such different ways too like some things are helpful for me that might not be, not be for the, for others um yeah, and I think I think just trying to remember him. The the thing that still that I think would that the thing that um is hard for me with that too is my phone actually got stolen right after he passed away. So I had like a lot of screenshots and you know, because he was sick for a while. So I I was keeping memories and screenshotting as one, I guess, I don't know, maybe I just did that, but I, I was, you know, worried constantly. Um, so I was screenshotting things and, um, and I had pictures from even like before he got sick, um, that all on, all on that phone and they're all gone, um, because the phone got stolen and none of it was backed up because I'm stupid. Like I, like, I just didn't do that. I don't know why. Um, but that, that's interesting too because it, I think those would be things that I would like occasionally look back on or sometimes I wish I could look back on them and um and I haven't been able to do that so that that is like a strange piece of it too I see him t I do little things too like when I'm feeling when I'm feeling like a wave I'll listen to a song that would like we really loved together or I'll um he loved taking drives. So I'll like go on a drive or if I'm in Glastonbury, I'll, um, or my hometown. I don't know. <laughs> oh God. Can you tell it's my first podcast? <laughs> I'll go drive up to the, you know, some spots that we used to always go to that I know he loved. And, um, Yeah. So that's kind of how, I guess that's how I still cope. I think the social support for me, at least with that, was was the most important thing for me. Just the ability to really talk about that with a lot of people and and that we had that shared experience of a friend, of a friend passing, so. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, neat time. I, I, it, it's, it is important to talk, to talk about that. I think I'll, I'll talk about it anytime. Definitely. Yeah. So shifting gears to like a different friendship topic, um, yeah. you moved from Connecticut to Boston. So how have you gone about creating a sense of community in Boston? Yeah, I well, so I am I am in the suburbs of Boston, so I'm not like directly in the city. Like I don't live, you know, in Southie or anything like that. But 
I feel like I need to make that clear because otherwise people who like actually live in Boston will come for me. Um, <laughs> and they're very passionate about that. I've learned. So, um, but yeah, the community piece, um, so important. I, it's, it, it's funny because for me, like a big part of my community, you know, you grew up in Connecticut and then went to school in Connecticut and I went to grad school and undergrad in Connecticut. Um, so a big piece of that was always family. Like I was always close to my family. Um, so that was definitely an adjustment, like moving away. Um, and from my grandparents too, my grandma's pissed when I moved. She was like, seriously, you know, I could like, you know, something could happen, right? Like I could like, I'm like, grandma, you better stop talking like that. Um, so they were, they, but no, they were supportive. So Josh, can I just say Josh? Yep. My boyfriend, Josh, um, has been up in maths for, through college. So he, he had some friends there, um, who had like some, you know, girlfriends. So I met people that way. A lot of people from, um, who I knew from home or from college were actually like up moving up there. So I had those people and I, I met some pretty cool people through like my work, honestly. Um, those are some of my closest friends now up there. Um, and then there, and some of their people. So it, it's, it's funny how that goes. It's been, um, it definitely took like a halt in COVID of adding people to that. I still have those people who I forged those connections with because I'm, I think I'm just really fortunate with the people I've been able to meet up there, but COVID, you know, COVID doesn't help when that happens, like your second year uh, out of, you know, away from the, from the hometown. So yeah, but I, it's all, it's also been kind of cool in COVID because some of those connections stayed really strong, even with like the, you know, in the grand scheme of life, like only a year or even less than a year, actually. A couple yeah. of them through work were yet less than a year. I had known them. Um, and those connections stayed. So I, I, in a way, I feel really lucky to have the community that I have, like, through COVID. Um, so, but I'm, I'm so excited for COVID to be, like, over where we can do, like, normal things again. That'll <laughs> yeah. be really fun. Um, community is just, it's so huge. And it's so overwhelming when you move. You're, like, it almost seems like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? how was, how do you meet people when you're not in school? But that was another thing too. Like I had been in school, um, for years and then I left school and just entered the workforce. That's such a foreign way to meet people, um, as like an adult human being, not forced to be in class with people. So I was like very overwhelmed, but, and then it work and then it works out like it, it just does. So, um, really cool yeah I feel really fortunate with the with the people who I have up there and you know every and everywhere but people who I'm able to see on a regular basis it's it's pretty cool so Ellie um I have some closing questions so this yes. one is fun heard it on another podcast and I've incorporated it into my own what mm -hmm. is something you recommend people read watch and listen to Yes. So I'm going to put a plug 
you are listen to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> but seriously your podcast is so good and it and I, I do love podcasts because a good podcast, you'll feel like you're in a conversation with the people um, who are in it. And I definitely feel that way with your podcast. Um, so props to you. So everybody listen to this podcast, even though if you're listening to this, you've listened to the end. So that means you're, you have. <laughs> but no, but so you and then my other friend actually from school, um, Tom, he has a podcast, a uh, uh, that's like more therapy based um it's like kind of strictly right. therapy based mm-hmm. well not strictly but um he's one of one of those like idols that I spoke about before he's like an amazing person and um his podcast is called mentally flexible and that's another one of my staples he has like amazing guests on from the field and um and it's just really cool and he does his own music for the podcast so i listen to his music too yeah so that that's the other thing both both my friends basically go listen (laughs) to both my friends (laughs) i love it oh wait do you have a read and watch oh a read and watch um (laughs) a read there is a book that i have been going back to a lot it's just about it's about acceptance and it's written by a licensed independent clinical social worker it's um, is it the art and power of acceptance yes her name's ashley um ashley davis bush yep that's it that one so the art and power of acceptance by ashley Davis Bush. The content is just so, it talks about acceptance um, and how important that piece of healing is and just acceptance of really little and change too, like of really little things. So um, that's something like work-wise, I I try and bring that into my work a lot. I've been watching Grey's Anatomy, re-watching it recently. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been, I'm on season four. So I'm kind of knee deep in that. But other than that, I can't say I've really watched that much stuff, honestly, which is disappointing. (laughs) I don't know. I've been I've been reading like a lot. It's I think in COVID, my brain is craving to get off of a screen Mm, at the end of the day. Like and and I feel so much better when I read a book. Also, I love the smell of books and I love Barnes and Noble and I love I love everything about books. (laughs) Um so I would rather read than watch smut TV. So I can't I don't have any good recs. Love it. Also, I watch TikTok. Like I'm, I'm a TikTok addicted, like, addicted to TikTok. Like I can spend hours on TikTok. It's disgusting. <laughs> I love TikTok so much. I okay, wait. It. So then, I think this is a good time. So like, how can people follow and support you? And oh, I feel like I your TikTok account. Oh, wow! At this question, I am non-existent. Yeah, I. You can, um, if you want therapy, like you can DM me on Instagram. I think my handle, I literally don't even know my Instagram handle. I think it's Elena.woodard. I have can a you, feeling that's what it is. Can you, you confirm? Check? Yeah, can you <laughs> confirm? I genuinely don't know. But um it's just not my jam. I don't know. I don't know why. It's just not. 
I like to, I like to stay up to date with what my, like what people are doing, but mm-hmm. I just, I don't know why. Okay. No, that's not it. It's oh, Ellie. <laughs> it's Ellie Woodard underscore. Okay. You can message me on Instagram if you like need a therapist recommendation or just have, you know, something you want to get off your chest. Like I'm happy to chat. Um, and my Instagram handle, which we just found out <laughs> because I didn't know it. Oh my God. That's so embarrassing. Yeah. If you want, if anyone who's listening to this needs a, needs to chat or anything resonated with you, you can message me on Instagram, Ellie Woodard underscore that's right <laughs> apparently question for you though I have a closing question for you oh yes please. because when are you gonna be interviewed because every time I listen to this podcast I'm like I want to hear more from Jay I want to hear from you like I want to know these questions about you I want to know like I would I would be interested in in someone asking you all these questions I don't know who you would want to do that for you or if you would ever want to do that, but. Yeah, wait, that's so nice. I'd have to think about that. Um, Maybe at like a year because I started this in October. Maybe October 2021. Wow, it's been, it's been since October. Yeah, I, I, I would just be, I would just love to have an episode about you, about the host. Wait, can I also put in a plug for something else? Yes. I have an invention idea. Okay. Called a candle hat. Do you know about candle tunneling? It's my new thing. Wait, no. I don't okay. think so. Candle tunneling is when your candle like burns um weirdly and then it doesn't like go all the way down. You mean like this? Oh wait. No, because that's like a candlestick. I'm talking about like a jar. You know when oh. you have a candle jar and it burns like super unevenly and you yes. waste a bunch of wax? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a candle hat would be like a like something you put on top of the candle, like a piece of tin or something, to make it burn evenly down. So also maybe you can interview me later so I can put a plug in <laughs> for my candle hat invention that I'm going to be making at some point. <laughs> Did I just date myself and make myself sound like no. 80? You sound much cooler after that. Wait, now I'm looking at that. hats are so cool. I was, like, thinking you, like, lit something on fire on your head. And I was like, that just doesn't sound to me. That, you are, like, every time I say that, people are like, my my friend literally goes, or when I said candle hat, but I didn't explain to her, she was like, oh, my God, you're going to look like Lumiere. I was like, no, that's, <laughs> what do you think I'm going to light my head on? <laughs> Okay, so I'm looking forward to hearing about your candle hat invention in the coming years <laughs> and your patents. Um, thank you so much for being on and sharing like your life and things you're excited about. Um, so thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the That's My Truth podcast. I hope you loved this interview with Ellie. I just was smiling as I was listening through editing the podcast this interview just had so much great information and perspective so thank you Ellie for coming on the show and uh, everything we talked about is in the show notes and as a reminder if you're looking for ways to support the show please subscribe uh, on Spotify we share an episode with a friend post uh, rate us in Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. So our Instagram is that's my
Okay podcast. You can reach out over DM, email, whatever works. And that's our show today. So thanks so much for tuning in and we will see you next week.